You know, we, I, I love Jessica's story, and we are a group of people. By the way, welcome. Good to be with you guys. My name's Jeff, and um, so good to be with you. I, we're a group of people who are, um, we have a reputation already as being generous people. I just want you to know that um, the Mission Viejo community is an incredibly generous community, and it's so good um, to hear that. And, and for those of you who are new with us, you're checking this place out, you're not sure someone brought you, they wanted to show off the additional wall in our room, because they're just so proud of it, it's the greatest thing we've got going. Um, but whatever it is, whatever reason you might have come in here, if you're new with us, this is a group of generous people. And, um, you know, we want to continue. Our, one of our things we talk about is it's our intent that people would become more and more generous. All of us would be. And there's never a point in our lives where we go, I've kind of arrived at generosity. I can check that off. I never have to be more generous. Just that we all, every single person in here, regardless of reg- your relationship with Jesus, regardless of what you think about our church, everybody in here wants to be a more generous person. And let me just say, if you're new with us, our intent is, we're so intent on that, that I don't want you to feel at all that there's any kind of coercion, intimidation, pressure, whatever it might be, to give money, to part with your money to this church. Here's why. I am so much more interested in you becoming a generous person that if you're not sure yet about us, I do not want you to give anything, really. I want you to see what it's like to be a generous person by giving somewhere if you don't trust us, because you're not sure the jury's still out for you about the whole thing. Just see what God does in your heart. The Bible tells us that when we give our money... It actually aims our own heart toward the things that we give. So all I'm saying is we want to increase in generosity. Whether or not you give here, that's not the most critical thing. If this is a church, however, that has become your own church, that you're like, this is my church family. I love being a part of this, and I want to participate in what God does through this church community. Then I encourage you to be a part of what God does by bringing an offering to our church community. This is the end of our fiscal year, and all that means is this. And this is, again, this isn't a, like, guilt trip or anything. We're good. We're, we're, we're doing great. But I just want you to know this. What you give in this, the end of this fiscal year determines what we can do in our ministry the next year. We just, we, we, the saying is that we live on what you give. We don't do more or less. It's like you give us this and we plan for the next year based on that. That's it. And so if you're considering, you know, like, hey, I want to be a part of what God's doing here, then maybe you want to participate in worship, in giving in that way for our, through our campus. Great. And for those of you who are already giving, what does it look like to become a more generous person even? To see what it looked like to become a more sacrificial, generous giver on a regular basis? What does it look like for you? But this is what, that's our heart for, our heart for worship, in, particularly as it pertains to giving, is about becoming more generous people throughout the course of our lives. And that's what that's all about. Um, so well, that's, that's it. Um, I want to talk to you too about VBS. You heard um, Ethan mention the VBS deal. VBS is like Bible day camp. And it is not, like some of you are like, Wow. They sit in a circle and read the Bible, and that's it. Then they go home and call it a day camp. No, it's like unbelievable. I mean, the, the, they make it so fun for these kids to make some of the most important decisions in their lives. And it, Kenton, our, the, lead, the senior pastor over all of our campuses, over all of Mariner's Church, sent out an email. And he said, there are 2,400 kids who attended the Irvine VBS, and there are 1,200 volunteers. Now, here's what I want you to see. Yes, there were lots of kids, and yes, there are lots of volunteers. I want you to see the ratio of volunteers to kids. It's one volunteer almost to two kids, which means the way VBS works is it works on the backs of great, dedicated volunteers. If you, there's still opportunities. You saw on the screen, there's some different opportunities. If you want to be a part of impacting some kids, and this is like junior high age all the way up to grownups, if you want to be a part of this, we would love to have you be a part of guiding these kids in their experience and encounter with Jesus. If that's you, there are places to sign up out on the patio. We'd love to have you be a part of it. It is critical. All right. Got it? Yeah, you can nod. Just nod, even if you're not sure yet. Okay, just nod. All right. Thanks for braving the heat and making it to church. You know, some of, some of your friends probably got up and went, it is just so warm. The beach is calling my name. And you, 
You dedicated people. I'm so proud of you. Way to be here. All right? Good to be with you. We're in the fourth week of our series called, cleverly enough, The Bible. And uh, we have, it's, you know, we, the Bible mini-series, and maybe you saw it as like 100 million views all over the world. People are super excited about it. And it's, you know, the, the Bible is incredibly influential, and it's not without controversy. But it's something that is, um, it has become something at least people are curious about. And as we talked, we just want to give you the quick update. As you're, if you're here in the first week, we talked about creation. We looked at the creation narrative. We said that all creation is oriented or intended to be oriented toward God. That every component, everything made, is intended to give God glory. That's just what God made. Then we talked about, and probably one of the most complicated, difficult, bizarre moments in the Bible, you have Abraham willingly, willing to give his own son as a sacrifice. We talked about all the different altars that, upon which we're willing to sacrifice the things God's entrusted to us. And then last week we talked about Moses and the Exodus, and we remember the Prince of Egypt, Charlton Heston sort of scenario, which there's plagues and wandering out into the desert. And there's this promise the whole time of something called the promised land, and that's where we take up our story today. Before we do that, let's pray. Jesus, we are people among all the other things that we have in our own lives, and our own hearts. We desire to be free people. There is so much that is vying for our attention, so much that wants for us to be held captive and held down. And Father, what permeates this entire group, which is among all of us, is that we desire to be free. Some of us, Father, are held captive by a past sin or a shame or a, a, a guilt that still has a grip on us. Others, us. others of us are held captive by um, addiction and habits. Others of us by grudge or by some kind of resentment or bitterness. Some of us are held captive by a vision of our future that we believe we're entitled to. And yet all those things do not deliver on their promises to give us life and hope and freedom. Father, would today be a day of freedom? Would today be a day in which captivity comes to an end for us? And in which we acknowledge that you are the one who liberates us from captivity and teaches us how to live as free people? So, Father, we acknowledge your presence. And in probably the most culturally rebellious thing we could do, we pause in stillness and in quiet and ask God that you would speak to us. Father, it is in your name, the one who sets captives free, that we pray. Amen. Well, it is, it is so good to be together. I, I'm excited to talk to you today. This is, this is like, if, you could, if we could capture all of the, like, the major Bible themes in one book, it would be the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is not something that's without controversy, but we're going to be there most of the time today in the book of Joshua. We're going to bounce around a little bit, but... We're going to do kind of a, a pretty difficult task, which is to cover the major themes of Joshua in, in one weekend, which means we're going to leave some stuff out, but it is, it is going to be great. I, I, I guarantee it will, it will it, it's something that just paints the whole picture for the whole Bible. So if you want to follow along, we're in Joshua 1. If you pull out your outline, you can follow along as well, but here we go. When I was in college, um, I was in a fraternity, and in my fraternity, what we did every, every there's part of the, like the most, the most desirable thing for all the fraternities was this thing called the... Um, it was the, the, the Interfraternity Council Cup, the IFC Cup. It was the, like, it was the, the way you won the Interfraternity Council Cup was by competing in intramural sports. 
And all the fraternities had to play at the highest level of intramural sports. And then if you won those sports, you got points towards the cup. And um, our basketball team was awesome. It was always good. But this one particular year, it became very good. Um, and there's five divisions of, of basketball. There's, uh, this is a big school. So there's five, ten, and under. There's the B, or there's a C, B, A, and double A. And double A is what you have to play at. And what double A, all the guys that played double A basketball, these are the guys that were probably also in another sport at, at UCLA, but then were like, oh, I could also play basketball and probably dominate because of my superior athleticism. So that's those guys who played in double A basketball. Now, one year. This guy joins our fraternity. He was a walk-on quarterback, so he really wasn't getting much time. And most football players don't pledge fraternities, but this guy did. And he was like, well, you know, uh, I can play a little basketball. And we were like, okay. And he's, he's, he looks about like me. He's like a little bit taller. And obviously, because he's like a football player, he's a little, bit, a little bit buffer. But he's not like, you wouldn't look at him and just go, my gosh, that guy is just enormous. Like, wasn't that kind of dude. He was just like a regular-looking guy who looked athletic. And he goes, I can play basketball. Turns out this guy has a 38-inch vertical leap. And he's, he's about 6'5", so he's a little taller than I am. But he's like, and, but he would show up to the basketball games, T-shirt, like surf trunks, and running shoes. And it was like, oh, you guys, I can play. And it was right off the bat. He would go right around a guy. Like, it was like, oh, Drew's got the ball. And Drew would take the ball, and he would go around a guy, and then he would just like double-handed dunk on the dude. And then he was like, oh, hi. And he was just real casual. Hey, everybody, great. You know, like no big deal. The next play, he had the ball. He would throw it off the glass to himself, catch it in reverse position, and dunk it on a guy. Hey, everybody, just out here just playing, you know. And pretty soon, pretty soon, we start getting crowds at our basketball games. Now, I was not on the AA basketball. I played on the B team. So I was like, I was not, it wasn't like I was a factor in any of these basketball games ever. I was just on the sidelines, just in awe of this guy. Now, he, he, a crowd starts showing up, coming to watch you know, our fraternity basketball team, hey, there's, there's, the, there's this team, you know, and it was like, we're, the crowd's forming, and you could tell, it was like, if Drew's with us, no one can even get in our way, I mean, it is like embarrassing for that poor other team that has to play us, because we're going to bury them, and it's going to be humiliating, and Drew will jump over you and dunk on your face, I mean, just like, I'm sorry, I see you down there, you know, he's just unbelievable athlete. Now, there began to be this sort of sense, though, People are showing up to watch us play basketball, and Drew isn't really a factor. All of a sudden, it's, kind of, it's about us, and we're pretty good, and we could probably do this without him. Now, they might, our basketball team might have won without Drew. But there's not a chance they would have had the same level of success. And there's not a chance that crowd's showing up to watch a bunch of other guys who are kind of out of shape has-beens. But this guy, he actually ended up being, he actually didn't have a good career as a quarterback. He ended up being drafted as a wide receiver in the NFL and played. Um, he was an alternate for the Pro Bowl. The guy's name is Drew Bennett. But this is a guy who was an unbelievable athlete. And it was a, it was a temptation was for our team to go, he's not relevant. What matters is how good we are. We don't need him. Now that theme runs cover to cover in the Bible. God's good. He's been good to us. But look how we're doing now. We probably don't need him anymore. Or to give you the fuller story, it's we're not doing so well. Things are falling apart. We need God. God shows up and does this powerful rescue, which he's known to do throughout the Bible. And once he accomplishes this rescue, everybody goes, thank you, God. We're going to need a little space. Could you give us a little bit more space? We don't need you anymore. And then the cycle continues forever. That's the, that is the, that's the nature of humanity and their relationship with God. And it's captured 
in this story, at least the beginnings of it, are captured in this story that we read in the book of Joshua. Now, here's what happens. God has promised to Abraham, we talked about a couple weeks ago, that there's going to be a land for his people. Those people then end up in slavery. Moses frees them from captivity. And they wander in the desert. Moses gets to see the promised land but not go into it. And now they're at this place where they're actually going to go into the land that was promised to Abraham. And here's what it looks like. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. Now, what, you got, what you're going to see is some of the stuff that you see in Joshua is intended to feel really similar to the journey of Moses. There's an intentional comparison or intentional linkage between Moses and Joshua. So they're going to cross a river. They're going to go over to this land. Joshua's going to lead them. We'll keep on going. So here's what God says. He kind of re-ups. It's, it's me and you guys. I'm with you guys, and you're with me. Don't forget that. Here's what he says, verse 5. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. You might circle strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to, the, to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Now, God's saying, it's us. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. I'm going to be with you like I promised I would be. It's about us being together, and you want me in that land. That's the plan, right? Okay, everybody's on the same page. Verse 7. Then he reiterates, be strong and very courageous. Evidently, Joshua is not a very courageous person. He needs to be reminded a few times. You're going to be able to handle this. Be careful to obey the, all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from it, from the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, this is that you can see already there's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what God's kind of thinking about what might happen to these people. You're going to take this land... You're going to get in there and you're going to think, I'm not sure I need God with us, but God's commitment is to be with the people in the land that he's given them. There isn't a provision, as you look at this, there isn't a provision. Some of you have um, junior high kids. Maybe you remember this when you were in junior high. Some of you are junior high kids are with us today. You remember this scenario. This is before the age of cell phones too, by the way, so it's a little bit more complicated. But you remember the scenario when you're going to the movie theater and you're so afraid of getting out of a car with your mother in it that you're like, if you could just drop us off four or five miles from the movie theater, that would be, but like, you're like, can you drop us off like at the edge of the parking lot and we'll, you know, can you drop us off like 400 yards? That way we could run there. And, you know, before we had cell phones, it was like, I promise I won't talk to a person who's smoking, which is the most evil thing when you're 12 years old to hear. It's like, there's a person smoking, you know, like, you don't even know. But you're like, I'm just going to run right by. I only make eye contact. I'll run right to the thing. But mom, please, I just don't want you to roll down the window and say something like, hey guys, don't forget to go to the bathroom before you go to the movie. You have to pee sometimes. That's really not, you know, like, mom, you, know, you don't want that moment, right? So you have the scenario where you want your mom to take you to someplace, but you don't want her to be there with you. Now God's saying, 
When I give you this land, it's not that deal. It's not, hey, if you, I could just drop you guys off and then have fun, kids. Call me when you need a ride. The intention here is God is going to dwell with his people. That's part of the whole we, us being his people, being in the land. All of that means I'm with you is what God says. And to move the story a little bit because there's a lot to cover. They scout the land. These guys, these spies scout the land. They, they're harbored by a person named Rahab who just gets the unfortunate title throughout the rest of her story in the Bible is Rahab the prostitute or Rahab the harlot. That's just her title. She gets that. But they go and hang out there. They figure out what's going on. They come back. They tell Joshua what it looks like. And then they, they cross the River Jordan. And as they cross the Jordan River, the water stops on one, the upstream, the water stops, and they walk across on dry land, which looks a little bit like crossing the Red Sea. So this is intended to be that same thing. It's all of that similarity is supposed to be there. Uh, then they cross the river like Moses. The people gather. Joshua gathers everybody up together just like the Israelites did at Mount Sinai, and he gives them the covenant again. Remember, you guys, it's us with God and God with us. And they're like, yeah, we're all excited. They're on the footsteps of Jericho, that city. And they're like, all right. We're ready to do this. Who's with me, everybody? Yeah, who's with, all right, here we go. Us and God, God with us. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 2, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeoth Haraloth. Everybody with me, we're all going in to take the city. Yeah, all right. I'm going to need the guys to stay here just a little bit longer before we go in there. Okay, everybody cool with that? Why? Uh, we, uh, just <laughs> a little technical thing uh, we have to take care of, but I'm going to need a lot of knives. <laughs> the, he, the, the translation of Gibeath Haraloth means <laughs> hill of the foreskins. <laughs> oh my gosh, exactly. So it's like all of these guys walk out of of Egypt. Their parents walk out of Egypt. These guys are the ones, the people who are still alive, are born in the desert. They have not yet had this marker of the covenant community that helps them know that they belong to God and God is with them. They don't have that marker. So they got to get it. And so <laughs> Joshua's like, so we're going to go ahead and take care of that right now. The verse 4, it, 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 I don't, it's on your outline, but this is where it explains. Everybody else died that would have had that happen to them in the desert. So you guys were born there. Ha we haven't initiated that right again, so... Let's get on, make sure we're all marking ourselves as belonging to God. Is there any other way we could mark that we belong to God? Can we have a special handshake? Can we cut our hair a certain way? Can we do something else? But that's the way they sort of identify we're part of this. Now, um, so they, then they celebrate Passover. These are markers of the covenant community. They celebrate Passover. I think it's in verse 10 and 12. They have them. They all get together. They, as they're recovering, it says literally, they get together and they celebrate the Passover. And they remember that it's God who rescued them out of captivity, and brought them to freedom. That God would rescue them from death itself and bring them to freedom. They acknowledge all of that, and they realize, okay, it's us, and they're about ready to go into battle at Jericho. Some of you grew up in the church, and you remember there's that sort of jazzy Jericho song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Now, some of you don't know that song, but that was awesome and jazzy, and so you can take that with you the rest of the day. You're welcome. Uh, but they go through, here's the way it works. They walk around the city. For six days, they walk around the city once. They blow, they blow some trumpets and do all kinds of stuff. Then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. They blow the trumpets and yell, and the walls come tumbling down. And this is God's command. This is incredibly confusing. Chapter 6, Joshua 6, 17 says this. 
The city and all that is in it are to be devoted. You might underline the word devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute, who we mentioned earlier, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things. There's devoted again. So that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp for the, for, of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble upon it. Now, here's what's weird. The word devoted is like a kind of troubling word. Because when we think about devotion, we think about the way that we're devoted, like Ethan's engaged. How is he devoted to his fiance? Like there's that kind of devotion, this us willingness being a part of something. Only this word is a different word for devotion. It doesn't translate well into English. The word is the word harem, which is where you might have heard a similar word, harem. Like there's a guy who keeps a group of women for himself. They're called his harem. They're also set apart, devoted to him. It also describe the room in which they live. Now, when we talk about the word devoted, we're talking about something that is set apart so that it can be expressly for the purpose of worshiping God. We're talking about setting something apart so that it can do, it does not, it is not profaned by doing things or being connected to things which are wrong or evil or bad. This form of devotion, this word, harem, is not just like we set it apart so that this people in the city can kind of turn their hearts to the Lord. Devoted here, in the most extreme form, is something that is set to be destroyed. In other words, Something that is destroyed can no longer do anything else that would be evil. That stops. And this is what God tells his people to do. The whole city is to be devoted, this kind of devotion, so that it can do no further harm. And it's a troubling kind of idea. But it implies that there is a total kind of devotion that can no longer be corrupted. Verse 21 says this. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Now that's crazy. That's extreme. It is utterly devoted to God. Now this is, this is a controversial passage. People who look at the Bible say, isn't this just the license for wanton genocide over a whole group of people? And I just want to give you a sense. I get why that's confusing. Let me give you a little bit of background. It might help. Remember, the Bible is for everyone. It is God's eternal word for everyone, but it is not to everyone. It is to a particular audience who would have understood nuance in language and culture differently than we would have, for sure. Now, battles are brutal. There is no question about that. People die in war. It is an incredibly brutal scenario, but I want you to understand a couple things. One is that this, some scholars think this is like a ancient Near Eastern hyperbole, like exaggeration. That when they say they killed every living thing, it meant they overtook the city and overwhelmed it and it was destroyed. But it doesn't necessarily mean that every, like, you know, oh, there's a cat, kill it. You know, we don't, I don't know, maybe. But that may have been what happened. It's possible. But it's also possible that it's a, a clear picture of military dominance. This, uh, this week ago, or sorry, maybe two weeks ago, the soccer powerhouse, Spain, played Tahiti in a soccer match. Now, Spain is known worldwide. They're always a favorite to be a contender for a World Cup championship. Tahiti has crystal clear blue water. <laughs> Spain beat Tahiti 10 to nothing. I mean, you could tell the Spanish players were just like bored. I mean, I mean I'm sure my high school junior varsity team might have done just as well as Tahiti. It was so, I mean, it was just unbelievable as a route. And if I told you guys that the Spanish soccer team 
killed the Tahitian soccer team, none of you would be like, oh my gosh. Just, I, I never liked the Spanish. I never trusted them because they, they, they kill people. I mean, that, you know, now, everybody here gets that. It's the same thing here. Total, den- total annihilation. Dead, dead. Okay. First thing. Might be hyperbole. Second thing is this. The city itself, when we think of a city, we think of like Manhattan Island, like where New York City is. We imagine a city like that, and the people came in, and there was, it took them like a long time to walk around the city. Or so. The cities in the ancient world, there's no real equivalent word, but it looks like it may have been more like a fort. And that the people lived, these are agrarian people, who lived under the protection of the city, but in its outskirts. So the people lived outside of it. So when we talk about a city being razed to the ground, absolutely destroyed, you're talking about what looks like a military fortress, upon which everybody relied on it for protection. So when they destroy the city, it's not clear whether they're talking about all of the people everywhere else who could have fled or just the military garrison in the middle. So you have then all of this stuff happening, destroying this powerful language that describes destruction and the whole city being devoted so that it can do no further damage. It can do no further harm. It, it, is, it is incapable of being profaned any further. Now, before they take this land, God warns his people several different times in several different ways about the kind of stuff they're going to encounter. And he says this back in Deuteronomy. He says this. This is God speaking to Moses, actually. The Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy 12, 29. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their God, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Whoa. We know from archaeology that infant and human sacrifice, these are part of what actually happened in Canaan. We know this is part of the regular religious practices of people who live there. We talked about when we talked about Abraham, the people, in attempts to sort of appease the angry gods who would otherwise take their own children, would offer one up right away so that the gods would be satisfied. This is a known practice by these people. And God's saying, when you go into the land, these people have practices that I'm not cool with. And you're going to think to yourself, wow, I wonder what they do here. How do they do that? That's pretty exciting. That sounds pretty fun. And he's going, do not get ensnared even by your curiosity about these things. These are things that will absolutely ruin you. There will be a strong temptation to adopt these things as your own. Now, there's another reason why God starts talking about this kind of devotion, harem. He says, when we st- war is a brutal and ugly thing. And he says, when we take this land, I don't want you people to be thinking to yourself, ooh, look at all the good stuff we could get. This isn't about your greed. This isn't about that kind of stuff. It isn't about seeing all the different stuff we can take. And so when he says, I want everything to be devoted, utterly devoted, harem, I want it so that nobody can then say at the end of the whole battle, look at all the stuff we've got. I want it all to be destroyed. No person can be taken as a slave. No livestock can be taken to increase your own wealth. No possessions, no wealth can be taken like no metals can be taken for yourself. That's all, I want it all for myself so that nobody has any great joy about this kind of stuff. 
it's all for me. It all points to me, and I don't want anybody here to enjoy it as their own. Parents, you guys know this concept. When things are so beyond that they have to be taken away, destroyed, so that there's no longer further conflict. Yesterday, I'm in my ultra-cool minivan. Those of you who laugh know the coolness factor. Uh, but there, we're in a minivan. I got three kids in the car. My, my wife Amanda's right here, and um, we're, we're, we're driving, and the, my kids got one of those, like, balloons with a rubber band on the end of it, so it's like a little, you know, you know what I'm talking about? It's like a punch, 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 which, of course, immediately then turns to, how's this going my brother's face? You know, and then my daughter's screaming. And all of a sudden, pretty soon, it is like screaming and battling for this, this balloon, which, you know, I mean, it was just insane. And finally, Amanda just goes, give me the balloon. And all the kids are like, but she, I don't, it's mine now. It's for me. I want the balloon. And the kids are like, you don't want it. Yes, I do. I want the balloon. You don't get it anymore. You guys wanted to have it anymore, but you can't stop fighting and killing each other over it. So it's mine. I really want this balloon. It has been utterly devoted to Amanda. Some of you will experience this concept on the patio afterwards. You, your kids will come to you and say, can I have a dollar for a donut? And you will say, sure, but you have to share it with your brother. And you will see terror and just unfold. <laughs> you will see fighting and malice and hatred burn in the eyes of your children as they try to share and who gets a bigger bite and all kinds of stuff. Now, the way to remedy that situation, just parents, devote it to yourself. <laughs> and just watch the kids look at you like, we were... Those was our donut. No, it's mine. It's mine. I own it. My donut. I'm happy to have you guys share, but it's mine. Now, some of you will give your kids a donut and create that scenario just so you can eat a donut. Like, you know, oh, I just wanted up just for the kids. I was protecting the kids. Sorry, guys. You understand. But you understand what I'm saying. What God is saying here is that there is so much corruptibility in this place. I don't want you guys fighting for it, trying to create your own sort of battles about it. It belongs to me. Everything in, this, everything in the world belongs to me, so don't think you can go and hoard it for yourselves. Don't ask about their gods. Don't try to think that you can kind of get into their sort of stuff that they got going. That stuff is not okay with me. Don't try to take some of their wealth because that is corrupting what we're about here. I will be with you in this land, but don't make it about what you can take or gain or hoard for yourselves. Now, what's curious is what isn't destroyed. Everything's supposed to be destroyed except for this one person, Rahab with the unfortunate moniker, Rahab the prostitute. Now Rahab has hosted these spies in her, in her, uh, in her house or parlor, whatever you might call it. She's got them there hiding while they're looking to figure out. They know that the Israelites are coming and she's got, them, she's got these spies hidden in her house and she's spared. And here's why she's spared. Here's what it says, Joshua 2. I know that the Lord has given you this land and what a great fear of you has fallen upon us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites to the east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. That's the picture of a person who says, the gods that are in this land are insufficient when we compare them to the gods, the God that you have brought with you, the God who goes before you. That God is the God of all gods. He is above everything else. Everything is underneath him. That's why Rahab and her household are spared. 
She herself has chosen, this is the true picture of devotion there. She does not need to be, quote, utterly devoted like everything else. Now, they take the city. Everything is destroyed except for Rahab and whoever's in her household. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, you see this. This is what happens. But the Israelites, notice this is plural. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Again, these things set apart. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of them, the devoted things. Now notice, just real quick, remember, what's being talked about here is the whole people, everyone, the Israelites were not faithful, and then it talks about a single guy. One dude does something that he's not supposed to do, and it impacts the entire community of people. In other words, these things that were set apart, devoted for God, harem, these things set apart, he goes and touches them and so connects himself with those things that are evil, that are not okay, that are part of a different land, that are part of a different God, and he therefore then brings it into the whole people. Now, we, we kind of think, man, this is kind of crazy. I mean, that seems weird that that would be, affect everybody. It's not our fault that he did that. Because we look at this through the lens of 21st century American culture, westernized culture. Some of you grew up in a culture that has, that's much more honor-shame based. You grew up in the East. You have family that comes from that place. You understand what that looks like. In other words, in an honor-shame culture, everything you do, good or bad, reflects on all of us who are connected to you. You are born into a set of obligations to the group of people into which you are born. And in an honor-shame culture, if one person of the group does something bad, it shames the entire group of people. Conversely, if someone does something really great, it is shared by, it honors the entire group of people. And there's this one person who does this one thing, who takes things that were set to be destroyed for himself. Here's what it says. So Achan took these things, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Not just against him, but against Israel. And to fast forward to his own story, what happens with Achan is he actually comes forward, you know, and says, well, they have a battle. They, they, all the Israelites go to battle. And they lose. And they're like, wait a second. What happened to the God is, you're with us. You're going to, you're, well, you'll never abandon us. We're going to wipe out anybody who stands in our way. What happens? And God goes, someone's been taking some stuff, some of the devoted things. Achan comes forward. And the way in which the devoted things, these things that had poisoned him, have to be dealt with is the most brutal way. They have to be put to death. And Achan and his family are killed. It's, it's crazy. You're like, Wow. Doesn't that seem a little bit crazy? He confessed, he gave this stuff back. And, no, no, no. He's been so polluted that the only way to deal with the sin and evil that has come upon him is to put it to death. Now, the Israelites are confronted with this idea, particularly because of Achan, which is, if I'm going to walk with God, I can trust him for his protection and his guidance and his life-giving promises. If I choose not to, if I choose the other gods in the land, then basically what I'm saying to God is, I don't trust you to take care of me and to do what you said. I'm going to trust these other gods to do this. Now, Achan isn't, expli isn't explicitly following other gods, but he's adopting those artifacts that would be connected with them for his own purposes. And so you see God's anger burn. God wants his people to be with him. He's choosing to be with them. Now, as we fast forward through this whole, the whole story of Joshua, you have more battles fought. You have covenants renewed. You have land taken and land distributed among different tribes of Israel. And then, then Joshua, at the end of his own life, at the end of the book, in Joshua 24, he reaffirms the covenant 
Like, you guys remember, it's us and God, right? It's us and God and God with us, and that's it, right? And here's what he says. Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors' worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Now, here's what he's saying is, God is desiring to be with you. And the way that works is we choose him. And he says to his people, you got to choose. You want him or you want these gods that are in the land? You can, ha- you can have either one. One will not give you the life that you're hoping for and one will. But don't choose both. Choose. This is your moment to decide what you want to do. We've seen God work. You've seen the land. We've had some ups and downs through this journey. Do you want God or do you want these foreign gods? Here's what they say. People say this. Then people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now, you have to know. Remember, this is written after all of this incident, all of this stuff happens. So people are aware that that might actually be the thing that they do when they're writing this. They actually might serve other gods. Here's what it says, verse 17. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he's our God. Now they perfectly recount the story of God's rescue, of his rescue from captivity into freedom for these people. And they're pretty pumped about it. And Joshua, hearing their impassioned, Desire to follow God says, verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord. (laughs) He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he'll turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been so good to you. In other words, this is just saying, you have have, have a choice again. God will be good to you or you you can trust these foreign gods and God will let those gods protect you. But he's saying, no, 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 no. God's holy, and you've got to choose him. You can't have both. Verse 21, but the people said to Joshua, no, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we're witnesses, they replied. Now then, Joshua said, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now let me say this again. I think you could say, you can make a very strong case, that the entire theme of the entire Bible is that last phrase. I think you could very easily make that case. Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Throw away the gods that are among you and yield your hearts to God. Now, my guess is, in this place, in our room, there are very few of you, maybe there's some, I don't know, maybe there are very few of you who actually have idols to foreign gods, to gods in your own house. My guess is that you don't have them. Maybe you do. My guess is that none of you are practicing human sacrifice as a means of, you know, helping your own business or your life. Or whatever. My guess is that's not something you're used to doing. Because our gods look a little bit more subtle than that in our land, in this land, when we talk about it. They don't really involve, in the you know, 21st century West, they don't involve a lot of those kinds of things. They involve other things that demand our worship. Now, what does worship mean? Is anything that has your focus, your attention, your desire, it's the things that 
preoccupies your mind and thinking it's the thing that you serve the most, the thing that you have to make sure you have among everything else, that's worship. Now, what are the things that you worship, that people might worship here? Here's a couple. Right now is a real easy one. Right now, we're coming up. It's summer. People are, gonna, people are at the beach. People are at the pool. And all of a sudden, you start thinking a little bit about how your own body looks. And you wonder, at least I do. I'm like, I wonder with my soccer coach, Farmer Tan, in my I wish I was a little bit in better shape, you know, scenario here. I wonder if... I would feel a little bit happier if I looked a little bit better. And pretty soon I start thinking about that a little bit too much, maybe. Maybe some of you have that scenario. Some of us in the room have a foreign God that looks a little bit more like a secret desire that is not permitted. In other words, to say it's a desire that God gave us, but maybe it's channeled in the wrong direction. Maybe it's pornography, maybe it's an addiction to something else, maybe there's something that's being satisfied in our own soul that is robbing us of the life that God has intended us to have. It's a foreign God. For some of us, I'm, today at 3 o'clock I, I leave to go to, um, to Africa. And I am, I, over the past two weeks, I just not slept well. I've been, you know, I've been preoccupied with so much stuff. And I realize one of the things that's come up over and over and over again is I'm not sure I trust God to handle the finances of my own household while I'm gone. It is worrying me to no end. So many of us have built our lives around a promise, a belief, a fantasy even, that if I, totally, if I fully and totally and completely invest myself in finance, in money, that it will someday or another return for me and everything I could have wanted for myself will come to be made true. And that is a foreign God that cannot give to you life. What is it for you? God says, throw away these other gods. Yield to the Lord. In fact, I do not think it is possible to yield to God and hold on to God's at the same time. This is a courageous thing. It's why Joshua challenges his people three times. Are you sure you really want to do this? Yeah, we're sure. No, you're not. Are you sure? Yeah, we're sure. I mean, it's like this back and forth because this is a huge deal. And after the people finally say they're going to do it, here's what happens. Joshua 24 says this. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord, our God, and obey him, which means we're getting rid of everything else. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. In other words, they started out saying, God started out saying to Joshua, it's going to be us, you and me, us together in the land. And at the end of all their journey, Joshua says, it's us together. It's us with God, people. We follow him with nobody else. And so they, throughout the story of Joshua and all of their relationship with God and his people, it's this, we're never going to forget who got us here. So he reaffirms the covenant. It's us and God. It's us together. And the reenacting of covenant symbols are always about not forgetting who God is. And today, we remember our covenant with God. There are no flint, lot, flint knives in any capacity here as we remember the covenant with God, just in case some of you are wondering about that. We're not, that's not exactly what we're going to do today. But there is a remembering of covenant. 
how we belong to God, those, all of those things that mark us as belonging to God are the symbols that we use in the church are the two most prominent ones, our baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, when we talk about Jesus, Jesus is the one who would absorb onto himself all the sin and evil, all the power of evil in the world, and he himself would willingly choose to be fully devoted to God. That in his own death, all of those things, the sin and evil that reside upon him, that he takes upon himself, would be done away with forever. He would be fully devoted. Jesus set apart, destroyed. That all of God's people, whoever would choose him, would be free. That's what Jesus does. It is God's intention to redeem all of us from captivity and to bring us to freedom. The Apostle Paul writes Jesus' words here in 1 Corinthians 11. He says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The word remembrance isn't a word we use a lot. We don't use it in a lot of like regular context except for this. And I like that because the word remember, there's a lot of things we remember that we kind of recall. Remember that thing? Remember what happened? These are all things. Remembrance has this other tone of it, which has this sense of not just remember that Jesus did some stuff, but that we belong to him and he belongs to us. Remembrance says, I'm throwing off the other gods and I'm yielding my heart to Jesus. It is an incredibly difficult, challenging kind of idea. Jesus says, the new covenant in my blood, meaning the way we will mark our relationship with each other, that we belong to each other, is that my own blood will be spilled, the Lamb of God will be spilled, the blood, that you might have freedom from death itself. That's what we celebrate. God's story is one that is rich in Joshua and it is rich in our own lives through the person of Jesus. So would you do this? Would you close your eyes for a moment? We need to consider what this might look like for you. What in your own life are those gods that are vying for your loyalty? Are they gods of consumption? Are they gods of materialism? Are they gods of satisfied desires? Are there choices that you have made out of fear of God not not being able to provide that have compromised something? Are you in a relationship out of fear of loneliness because you're afraid that God cannot provide and will not provide for you? Do you consistently choose those kinds of relationships? Trusting in those things to provide for you what God cannot. Are you harboring bitterness or anger or resentment or malice because you're afraid that if you don't harbor those things that God himself cannot do what he says So you take it upon yourself. Are there people with whom you have bitterness and anger that need to be addressed? Is there 
something in your own life, maybe perhaps a searching for attention or meaning or significance through your own career or through money that you go, if I could only have this, then my life would be given to me and I'll, do, I'll, get, I'll get it at whatever cost. What are those things? What does it look like to throw those gods away? Because in throwing them away, we indicate our own, the direction of our own hearts, which is to yield to God himself. Is it a conversation to seek or to build forgiveness? Is it a reorienting of our own lives around the things that God's called us to, to release some of those things in our own businesses, in our work, our own ambition, our own selfish desire? Is it a God of the flesh, of desire that has consumed you that occupies all of your thinking and thought. What does it mean to yield? Father, we are people who choose to follow you because we believe in our heart of hearts that we can trust you and that is your intention to bring to us freedom and life and hope. God, we're people that continually fall back on the foreign gods living in this land that we might trust them every so often. And today, God, we say, we don't want them. We throw them away. And we trust you. And we remember you in communion, Father. Not just that you did some stuff, but that you, God, are the one who releases us from the captivity of all those other gods. And we say, we choose you. We yield to you. And so we give to you our response in communion, in singing, and in prayer that you might hear us in your name. Amen.